Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Book of Life. Follow me. You need to see something special. All the world is made of stories, and all of those stories are right here in the Book of Life. But the greatest story begins on the Day of the Dead. A day when spirits pass between worlds and anything can happen. Ah, uh, look there. Two best friends. Oh, in love with the same girl. How about a little wager? I bet that Maria will marry Joaquin. Very well. By the ancient rules. The wager is set. Manolo, it's so beautiful. I will lose the wager. Fix this for me, old friend. I may not be the town hero, Maria, but I swear with all my heart, I will never stop loving you. Snake! Manolo! Where am I? Welcome to the land of the remembered. Don't try to take it all in at once. This is incredible. Epic fiestas every day. All you can eat churros. My lady. Please help me reunite with the love of my life. If you complete these tasks, you will see Maria again. This is your periodic reminder that we have two other podcast feeds, the School of Movies Archive and the School of Everything Else Archive. If you can't find a podcast on the School of Movies feed, it will be on one of those two. And so to Book of Life. This is a little-known 2014 animated film produced by Guillermo del Toro, our absolute favourite. It was directed by... Jorge Gutierrez, creator of the Nickelodeon show El Tigre, The Adventures of Manny Rivera. And it's a collaboration with Real FX Animation Studios. So these were the guys behind a bunch of kids' movies that you've never seen, like Open Season 2, Open Season 3, The Ice Age Christmas Special, Free Birds, which I believe is about turkeys, or possibly chickens, and a quite good collection of Kung Fu Panda shorts, Secrets of the Furious Five, that we mentioned back when we did the Kung Fu Panda show. It is thus miraculous, aside from the fact that it's got Guillermo del Toro in charge, that this movie is really rather lovely. This is a commissioned show by Abel Savard, who previously wanted us to cover The Expanse, which is a lengthy sci-fi TV show, but mercifully suggested a movie instead, one that we had seen and probably wouldn't have covered for many years, if at all. But now that we've dug deeper, it can get the full School of Movies treatment tonight. Now, we've not seen El Tigre, The Adventures of Manny Rivera, but we, because you can't see it on YouTube. Like, if you look for it, you get the PlayStation 2 game clips, and that is it. Because Nickelodeon have just said no. No one may ever see this TV show. But they did permit the uploading of it, what of its uh, intro sequence. And it's manic. It's, it's one of those flash animation um, cartoons where all the movements are incredibly 
you know, quick because it's just, you you know, you've got a kid standing there like that going, and then a kid flings out both arms in one immediate animated movement because it's easier to do that in Flash than to go arms in the middle, arms in the middle, arms in the middle, out, and just do multiple frames. You just, so all of the, all Flash animation tends to be very sort of, ah, like that. Miracle City, a spicy cesspool of crime and villainy. This is the story of Manny Rivera, better known as... Son of the legendary hero. White Banana! Grandson of the evil supervillain. Boomer Loco! And it appeals to kids who are very energetic. And it thus, like, the, the, the kids' shows that really get viewed a lot, and specifically the kids' shows that test well, uh, tend to be the really crazy manic ones. Somebody uh, said, um, after hearing about the Princess Thieves, um, in fact, before it even started, oh, dude, you're going to love Star versus the Forces of Evil. And I watched the first episode, and I was like, oh, God, it's doing my nutting. And the second episode was so grating. And there, there is a certain type of show that I cannot watch. It's just too energetic. And I don't think I could ever have watched that. Like when I was a kid, I liked Ren and Stimpy, but it wasn't always that level of, ah! mm-hmm. Like, Ren would get manic at times, but then there would be sort of, um, it, it would, you know, change pitch and, and, and slow down and up. And this film is not like that. But it does do a pretty good job of convincing you it might be like that, especially at the beginning. It is a deceptive little trick to get the kids who are manic to get all, yeah, let's watch this, it's totally on our level, and then slowly calm them down throughout the story until they're really engaged. It is, effectively, and I mean this in a positive light, dark side tactics. It is... (laughs) lulling kids into a false sense of this is going to be just brainless mindless fun yay because uh, unfortunately that that will you know push adults away and, and it's possible star vs the forces of evil becomes more like this as it goes on uh, you know I, I have difficulty with powerpuff girls and even sometimes samurai jack but um that those are the that and dexter's lab these are the uh, animated shows from the late 90s sort of just as flash animation was becoming a thing and like even though they were animated traditionally like you know the the follow-ups from that have become flash animation again there are plenty of shows i haven't ever actually sat down and watched but the intro sequences make me want to chuck like breadwinners that particular whipping boy of ours that got mentioned by uh, Jerome to us the first time around. 
And yeah, so watching El Tigre, it's very kind of kids holding up tacos and going like that. But I gathered that uh, Jorge Gutierrez uh, made it very much about his, you know, his life in in Mexico. And, um, you know, there's a lot of culture sort of soaked into that. So while it is dark side tacticsing all the American kids to sit and watch it for all the manic energy, he's also subtly telling them a story about Mexico. And the same is absolutely true with Book of Life. I think, actually, it might be better for you guys to listen to us talk about it first and then watch it, because it is very easy to pass this one up. The first time we'd watched it, you know, we were we were sent it by uh, Matt Wetter, I think it was. Um, God bless you, Matt. Thank you. And we watched it. We were like, that was really nice. But, like, we didn't really take it on board. Mm. Um, and the second time when we were really watching it, because, you know, the game was on, we had to. And uh, I also picked it up on Blu-ray so we get that extra definition. Um, you know, it, it really came together for more of a wallop. And the more I found out about it through the extra features and the commentary, the more substance and texture there was beneath the surface. So it's one of those, it's, it's a grower and it sort of opens up and there's so much detail in the background of the kind that we love that... I mean, you, you, I still had to steal myself through the manic kids stuff, especially at the beginning, but the, it, it calms itself down. Um, Sharon, do you want to synopsize it for the folks at home? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, wh- one thing I would just add to that, actually, is that the the fact that the extras opened it up for us this time. Despite the fact that there's only about half an hour's worth yeah, of Blu-ray. Yeah, there's, there's not much. Three little featurettes. At least one of them is one of those. Coming soon to your theatre. Mm. Like, talking heads for six seconds and then 20 seconds of the movie. Like, you know, well, montages of, like, crazy manic stuff. Yeah. There's not a great deal, but there's more than you get on a lot of um, of particularly kids' movies. And it, it occurred to me that there are a lot of people who make films or possibly who distribute films, who look at it in terms of, oh, they don't want to know how the sausage gets made. They just want to watch the movie and enjoy the movie. And and play DVD games with Shrek. Yeah, something like that. But ultimately, this is a prime example of how seeing that undersurface stuff sells me more on the material Mm. than the material on its own. Ah. We were discussing actually Lord of the Rings and Weta and how um, had like we loved Lord of the Rings straight up, but then watching the extended editions a year later after each one really cemented how each one was just even more special than we thought. Yeah. The craftsmanship that went into those extras just drew us in, mm-hmm. and that gave us so much to work with for our um, episodes on on the Lord of the Rings shows. Absolutely. I mean, I I love all different kinds of art, whether it be painting or sculpture or film or poetry or video games or whatever. But the process of how people make that art is even more fascinating to me. 
Do you think Michelangelo left notes at the end of the uh, Sistine Chapel for people to check out his extra features? I hope so. Da Vinci did. <laughs> we know, they've just put Da Vinci's notes up online. All right, then. Yeah, go check them out. I will. There you go. Are you want to in... know how Da Vinci's sausage was made? It's all there. Are they in, like, ancient Italian? Quite possibly. Would they know. lead to maybe the Holy Grail? They might. Okay, I'll go they check might. that out. Would I get Hans Zimmer to score it while I'm looking? Countdown begins to somebody making an, uh, what is it, what's it called? An AR game? Yeah. Using Da Vinci's ARG. Notes. ARG, yeah. Alternate reality game. Mm. Yeah. yeah. That would be good. So, synopsis of uh, the Book of Life. So, the intro sequence is a 3D animated segment about a small group of children arriving at a museum which they are less than thrilled about. And it's slightly different animation to what you get later on. It's much yes. more sort of broad strokes. Like it looks like a really generic cartoon. It really does. And I think that's deliberate. Oh, yeah. it, it is still stylized. Um, you can tell from the fact that, that some of the kids have really big pig noses. Yeah. And, oh, the pig um, noses in this movie are, they out, are out of, of control. control. They really are. <laughs> Off the hook pig noses. And even the ones on the real pigs. They're just, they're, they're double pig. Oh, because I'm double pig. Mm-hmm. Um, so they arrive and they're really unimpressed with the idea of visiting this museum. And then a really hot redhead uh, museum attendant comes out and says, oh, I'll take it from here. And um, basically... Yeah, there's this old guy who's uh, um, trying to get the kids' attention and the kids are just spitballing him. Absolutely. Um, And she leads them in through a secret door. Labyrinth style. And instead of going to the normal part of the museum, she takes them into a room where everything is decked out in... This is turning into a horror film. um, It it is a bit. (laughs) Um, Well, it's all decked out in Mexican... Uh, decoration and it's all themed around um, the Day of the Dead. Yeah. And she takes them over Cinco to de Mayo. a book called uh, The Book of Life. Um, right, I have a question about that actually. Can we just clear this up? Because Cinco de Mayo mm-hmm. is Sounds the 5th like of, of May, May and the Day of the Dead is the 2nd of November. Mexican Halloween. Oh, there we go. It's the uh, date is observed as to commemorate the Mexican army's unlikely victory over the French forces at the Battle of Puebla. Puebla? That's where Miguel comes from. Hey! Nice. My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado, and I am far from home. My father swears I am misremembering the events of the day Puebla fell to the monsters that swarmed in from the north. New Century, Tiger's Eye, available on Bandcamp. Okay, so, okay, so that Cinco is de Mayo nada to is do not... with uh, the Day of the Dead. Yeah, so it would appear. And Day of the Dead is Thursday the 2nd of November, so it is definitely tied in with Halloween. Now, this... Dude, do you want to do, like, like we always do like a Halloween tie-in with your birthday, but do you want to do like a Day of the Dead instead? That would be pretty cool. We could do both. We could do both. Nothing stopping us doing both. Okay. Um... But the... Uh, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. The yeah. So she... T- there you go. Oh. October Begins 31st. October 31st. Begins October 31st. Ends, ends November, November 2nd. 2nd. Right. I've said this before about... Right. Pagan traditions around Halloween time, they know how to party. They last for days. Mm. Pagan uh, traditions or specifically ancient traditions, some pre-Christian traditions, do in fact play into the narrative of this. Mm, well, in fact, it's kind of a rather important point. The Celtic New Year um, 
I never know how to pronounce it properly, but Samhain. Samhain. Is October 31st through to something in November, but it lasts like three or four days, maybe even five. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that that you're not in any part of the year during those days. You, You are detached from the real world. You go into a dead realm where you can do weird things and interact mm. with people who've passed on and that kind of stuff. So, well, you just you just blurted out like a lot about the film. The, the the realm of the dead is a major location in this game. It is. In film. this film, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> he did say um, uh, Gutierrez did say he is inspired by video games as much as he is by any other media because he thinks they're just as important. Well, all right. Got a thumbs up from me. That one did. Okay. He seems very much like a new generation director as Absolutely, well. Absolutely. Like he's yeah. he's uh, he was talking about you know I've grown up on commentaries and I'm like well okay I was 17, 18 when commentaries were even first a thing so mm. um, he might even be younger than me. Quite possibly. Um, so, so the attendant is showing the kids all this um, sort of artwork. And no, he's forty-two. Decoration and uh, stuff like that, and she takes them over to the Book of Life, which is a big, huge book. Now, everything of life. The animation in this room. This is where you start to see the first subtle change, because it goes from this overly smooth, stylized. Slightly way cold. Of drawing, yeah. yeah. To everything being incredibly detailed and looking massively real and warm. And yeah, you so the Got pages of the book look like stop mo animated paper. Mm. Everything's a little bit torn. Everything's a little bit creased. This a is when bit it dusty. first starts to look more like Leica. Absolutely. And when we say real, we don't mean it looks like something that exists in the real world. The moon in this film is this beautifully uneven cut-out circle, like it's from a scrapbook. What we mean is photorealistic to the point where you feel like you're looking at models. She basically starts to tell them a story from the Book of Life about uh, these three gods. More specifically, it's two gods, a third figures later. Yeah. Yeah, although she, but she mentions all three specifically when she starts to tell the story. Okay. Um, and there's... But we don't uh, want to confuse them. No, fair point. Uh, La Muerta. La Muerta. Who is described as being made of candy. Mm-hmm. She is a beautiful skeletal queen mm-hmm. wearing red with this great big hat covered in candles yep. and a skull face. But it's a beautiful skull face that's painted like a skull. Indeed. Um, and she's effectively a, a goddess of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very positive one, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, then there's uh, Zibalba. Is there room for Zibalba? Uh, who is apparently made of tar. Yeah, he's made of black stuff. Yes. Um, and he basically, la- the idea is that the, the realm of the dead is divided into two. There's the land of the remembered, which La Muerta is in charge of. And that's basically, I suppose it's effectively heaven. This is where you go when you die, as long as there is somebody alive who remembers you. Yeah. And it's all very beautiful and colourful and festive and, and seems like a very happy place. And then there is the land of the forgotten, which is where you cross over to when the last living person who remembers you passes on. Hmm. Um, and uh, Zibalba is in charge of this particular world. He's not particularly... Th- Thrilled about that. Um, so kind of like Hades in um, uh, the Disney Hercules. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there is a third god who, as Alex says, doesn't 
figure heavily in the beginning part of the story. The candle maker. Yep, who is made of wax. But it's sort of a glowing soft wax who looks very much like the uh, genie out of um, uh, Aladdin with a little bit of um, the gods in Hercules because he's glowing from within and a little so tiny bit of uh, Rise of the Guardians. Mm, Wasn't that the yeah. Sandman in that had that same kind of look, yeah. which was, I believe, also associate produced by del toro was it yeah. oh cool um but the the purpose of uh, busy. the wax god is that he oversees the souls of uh, the living and the dead and, and all of their stories and the idea of the book of life is that everybody's story is written in this book so he's kind of like a, a balance point i suppose the museum attendant is telling this uh, this story to the children and she's uh she introduces the idea of uh, these people in a village who become central to the relationship between mm. these gods. It's the story of a village and the two gods, uh, the La Muerta and uh, Sabalba, uh, have a wager they based do. on uh, three humans, yes. three human children that they spot. Yeah, they get into an argument over the fact that uh, La Muerta gets to be in charge of the land of the remembered and uh, Zabalba is stuck with the land of the forgotten. Zabalba and... is voiced by... The great Ron Perlman. He is, and he's wonderful. Um, and uh, Lamuerta points out to him that basically the reason that he's in charge of the Land of the Forgotten is because the last time they had any kind of uh, competition or anything like that, he cheated. Yeah. Uh, Lamuerta is voiced by Kate Del Castillo, who has done a lot of Spanish language films and a lot oh, of Spanish Lord, TV. Oh, she really has. Yeah. So the, the museum attendant, Mary Beth, unveils this box of little wooden puppets. Action figure type yeah. marionette puppet type things. Absolutely. Um, and basically these are the humans in this story. And she starts to tell um, what happened and how the gods got involved in their life. Well, they are a bit like mini-mates. Mini mates. <laughs> they, I was just pulling up mini-mates uh, on uh, Google Images. They remind me, just in terms of their... Um, their hinges and their like blocky little legs and bodies of uh, mini mates, which are a kind of a standard of figure. What they tend to do all kinds of uh, comic book and movie licenses, and they're they're kind of like a, a more puppety Lego figure, like they're, they're yeah, they just over Lego a bit figure size, crafty but not quite as blocky. Yeah, a little bit Minecrafty, but yeah, just Google mini mates and that'll give you an idea. And also, you know. Google uh, Book of Life because that'll you'll be able to key those up. But these ones are clearly carved out of wood and you know beautifully segmented and uh, across their you know arms they have um, three uh, hinged sections to each arm yeah. and like very broad chests and the uh, very ma- obvious pins holding their elbows yeah. together, which I thought was a really nice little touch. You could basically if you if you angled the camera up, it's possible that they were being controlled by people with marionette strings, mm. which again. Sometimes Leica feels like that. Yeah, uh, which but, is kind of the implication mm. with the when the gods get involved in your yeah. everyday life, really, isn't it? Now uh, the male uh, characters are all very blocky and you know, broad-chested, and if they become elderly, they are very broad-chested with very tiny legs. Mm. Yeah, but everybody looks like upside-down triangles, yeah. except for the women who all look like right-way-up triangles. Yeah, because the the female characters designed by uh, Gutierrez's wife, uh, Sarah, Sandra. Sandra Ekiwa, and uh, they've been together since 2001, and she's been his like co-collaborator on Manny uh, El Tigre. Uh, so you know she's 
she designed all of the um, uh, the female characters, and uh, they, they complement one another in the uh, the actual design process, so that they the uh, curves are accentuated on the females because of the blockiness of the males, which is uh, vice versa. And um, uh, he based some of the romancing uh, in this uh, film on things that happened between the two of them. So it's got this real personal feel. And Del Toro said on one of the Talking Head shorts. Um, that when you put out art that is very personal, you make that your thing, you make that unique. That's what makes it different from all the generic stuff because you're putting yourself into it. Mm. Yeah, which is what, if it's art, that's what it should be doing anyway. Yeah. You shouldn't be making art that looks like what everybody else makes and still really be able mm. to call it art if it's not got your heart and soul in There's it. There's a fine line that uh, exists that some some art and products can in fact tiptoe across that line mm. quite comfortably. Marvel do pretty well at this and yeah. obviously we talk about them all the time but um, But there does uh, need to be a degree mm. of personal involvement. Leica I would say are firmly in the art camp. They yeah. just They ne- barely make any profit. They just need the money to keep going and they just keep going. Mm. It's not about the product. Yeah. Uh, although the product they put out is always fantastic art, but it's not about the merchandising. No. no. You put money in, you get art out. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> but not much money. No. <laughs> um, so uh, these three kids um, that uh, the, uh, the the two gods make their wager on, there's uh, uh, Zoe Saldana uh, plays uh, the grown-up version of uh, this girl who gets grown up pretty quickly, uh, Maria. Uh, strong, confident, young uh, Latina girl and there aren't enough of those in cinema and that's something that Gutierrez most definitely wanted. He he hero-worships females uh, in, in this to the point where you know some complete assholes could watch this and go, yeah, they're all Mary Sue's because the men are all flawed and the girls have all got it together. Mm. In that. Although they, have, they do have their own flaws, although largely they seem to be that they continue to put up with the incredibly hmm. flawed men <laughs> that yeah. they find themselves surrounded by. But he, he did say that um, it's all based on the fact that he grew up around strong very women. strong yeah. women in what sounds like a very matriarchal family. And this is the story he's you know, retelling of their influence. Um, Diego Luna, he of Rogue One, plays uh, Manolo Sanchez, who is the plucky young Peter Parker type hero of the uh, story. And uh, Channing Tatum uh, plays Joaquin, who is um, positioned to begin with as this boisterous sort of, you know, warrior type kid who ends up being a little bit Gaston-like, but there's more to him and we'll go in there later. Mm. Um, so That did occur to me. I was like sat there thinking, this is the story of what would happen if Gaston wasn't a complete arse. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the the wager is simple. That um, they each pick a champion, and whoever uh, young Maria will finally marry when uh, she's uh, old enough um, will declare the winner uh, of the, their little wager. La Muerta picks Manolo, and Zabalba picks Zavalva. Zab- <laughs> Zibalba. Zibalba picks uh, Joaquin. They... There is there is a specific reason for that. Uh, Manolo demonstrates compassion. Yeah. Um, and uh, Joaquin thinks he's a bit of a sap mm-hmm. as a result. And Joaquin demonstrates strength, but selfishness. Yeah. 
So they both um, figure that they can work their magic a little bit uh, more strongly on the person who is closer to them in personality. Mm. Um, La Muerte appears to Manolo, um, who is a young guitarist, a little mariachi, and uh, asks, in the guise of an old woman, may I have some bread? And they're celebrating the Day of the Dead at this point, and the father, uh, played by Hector Olizando, uh, who um, I've always loved since Pretty Woman... And Wan Shi Tong in uh, uh, Legend of Ang uh, explains about, as, as you said before, Sharon, that uh, the dead are honoured on this day and we remember them. When we forget our dead and departed, they change from the land of the dead to the land of the forgotten. There's a, a dark subtext to this, mm. the idea being that you know there are plenty of people who have, in fact, been completely forgotten and they end up going to this dark limbo of this dusty hellscape mm. and um which they do fade away from it's not as if they're, they're not stuck they're not in, in torment this, they no, just they're not stuck there yeah. forever eventually oh, it's like they, the, it's like the memories in the inside pit in, out. inside yeah, out yeah they're just they're gone they eventually they just fade dissipated. away and you don't get the impression that this is an unnatural way of things either it's like you know we we do our best to remember as mm. many of the of the those who have passed on as we can but we can't remember everybody. Yeah. In Philip Pullman's way of thinking, everybody goes there. Mm. Absolutely, there, there is no uh, you know, lovely party carnival Day of the Dead place. It's all just this the, the land of the forgotten. But that places the emphasis on remember your loved ones, remember the departed. Uh, I love one thing that Gutierrez said of uh, you know tell their jokes cook the food that they used to make, keep the, the recipes going. That is so lovely, the idea that you would keep someone alive by how they cooked. The, the idea being that the Day of the Dead is a sort of a celebration rather than a, um, it being scary. And in fact, the, um, the, the skulls and all of that iconography are all uh, to, to do with simply embracing the fact that they've died, and that's fine, and that's mm. natural. Yeah. There's there's two elements as well that come in later in the film that emphasise why it's important to remember them and that it's not just for their sake that we remember them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment when um, uh, Manolo meets his ancestors mm-hmm. and learns something really, really important, that in life he couldn't... He in the living world he couldn't find out because it's not something that people talk about mm. um, and then there's a scene where he basically gets boosted upwards by numerous generations of his ancestors mm. so and he, he's literally being thrown up Woods by each generation until he finally gets to the top. That's at the end. That reminded me, interestingly, of uh, Final Fantasy Advent Children. Mm. Remember that? Where every um, member of Cloud's team um, throws him up further towards this Bahamut that he's got to uh, destroy on his own. Yeah. It's less of a, you know, major, we are held aloft by our families. Um, but it's got that, it's on the same plane. It's It's got the same idea of that, you know, we are these friends and connections can lift us to heights that we could not on our own. Mm. But it's the combination of being able to stand on the shoulders of our predecessors Mm. and not repeat their mistakes and um, Mm. and, uh, sort of mindless traditions and do things 
in a way that's more suitable mm. for us. So Lamuerta um, asks in the form of an old lady, can I have some bread from your mother's grave that you've decorated with bread? And uh, Manolo, being a kind little boy, goes, of course, have some bread. She'd want you to have it. So Bulba goes to uh, Joaquim and asks the same thing, basically. But Joaquim's like, mm, what's it worth to you? Like, you know, what do you want for this bread? This, by the way, uh, Joaquin is at the grave of his father, who mm-hmm. was a great war hero. Yeah. And as a result, everybody in the village has left bread on his grave. There is a ton of it. Yeah, He's uh, greatly uh, admired uh, and... Um, that effectively, that means Joaquim is constantly living in his his great deceased father's shadow, mm. as in he saw off the bandits. So that's one day Joaquim will have to do the same thing. Yeah, and that there is a big element of this in the story as well. The idea that um, that we have to that if we feel compelled to do what our fathers expect of us, and by fathers I mean ancestors and families. Um, then we'll never be able to truly find out who we are. And all three of the the children are compelled to do certain things by their fathers, Mm. even Joaquin, and his father is dead. Yeah. So for his uh, his kindness, uh, Manolo is uh, afforded the blessing of La Muerte, although it's just as an old lady at the time. He doesn't know that it's a, a goddess. Um, and uh, Joaquim is given a badge of invincibility, a medal, in return for the bread, um, because he's more mercenary. Even a vaguely a, a small amount of conniving is in there. Because she frees a pig from being butchered, uh, and the pig, uh, they never exactly say it but the the pig is fixated on being a goat it's a goat in a pig's body a trans pig yeah um and the pig's name is chewy chewy yes. chewy chewy uh and uh she prevents his slaughter and uh is then shipped off to europe uh to uh become a better person and uh specifically they send her to a convent school in spain there you go to uh you know, to learn and uh, to become... I want to go to this convent school in Spain. <laughs> yeah, she came. She ends up coming back really smart and on the ball and, like, you know, just as kind-hearted as she was before, but, you know, with some you know, book smarts to back that one up. And uh, she keeps the pig and he becomes her best friend. And, uh, yeah, so while she's doing that, we've got a training montage of the two boys. Now, Manolo... His father was a bullfighter, and his father before him, a bullfighter, and before him, a bullfighter. And there is a constantly repeated subtext of tradition. This is what your fathers have done before you. You must carry on this tradition. Manolo realizes fairly soon he doesn't like the idea of killing a bull. And I've always had a serious problem with bullfighting. The the actual flair and the theatricality of it I love the sadism of it, I find gut churning and bone chilling. The actual, like the the rigging the game and the 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 sadistic torture and execution of the uh, animals. Not specifically because I hate the cruelty to the bull. I hate that, but I hate the fact that people are doing that gleefully and not asking themselves, is this a bit too much? How it reflects on us. I hate cruelty to animals. But I especially hate the fact that to be this cruel to animals for entertainment takes away some of humanity. 
That thing uh, J.K. Rowling said about the um, uh, to create a Horcrux and to murder someone who requires you to shed part of your soul to basically murder bull after bull after bull. That's got to keep severing a little part of of your empathy with the with living creatures. It's disturbing. And so Manolo, you know, getting to the point where he's bested a bull in the ring and then can execute it but decides against it, even though it earns the whole, the, the disgust of the whole town that he's this rubbish bullfighter. Mm. It reminded me of How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, me too. And um, also a little bit of uh, uh, the Mariachi trilogy in that um, what he really wants to do is just play the mm. guitar. He gets dragged into this violent blood sport. Um, and, you know, he's at his best when he's playing with his uh, his band members. Um, but that's not what keeps getting shunted in. Now, what that e- effectively equates to within the story is an embracing of the uh, inspirations of tradition without literally carrying on, word for word, every action of the tradition. Revising, moving forwards becoming progressive and that sort of film I'm going to sit up and take notice and go okay what else you got because that plays in very heavily throughout this because when he goes to the land of the dead and he meets various forefathers they all killed a bunch of bulls and he has to reconcile with the fact that he he wants to that to change with him that he wouldn't be carrying on that particular um, bloody tradition And meantime, Joaquin's been out adventuring and, you know, fighting endless battles and not being harmed because this medal renders him effectively invulnerable. Mm. Uh, so Maria returns and um, the the boys basically are still looking for a way to get her attention and encourage her to choose which one of them she wants to be with. The dynamic between the three of them is something that I actually really, really like when it shows up in um, in stories, which is this idea that you have a group of people, one of whom is effectively the hand, one is the heart and one is the head. And they maintain that dynamic quite well. Uh, Joaquin being the hand... Uh, Manolo being the heart and Maria being the head. When when Maria arrives, they're having a they're having a festival and they have a bullfight and it's Manolo's first big fight, and he uses it to basically charm Maria. And her message to him before she left was to always play from the heart, and she was very encouraging of him and his music. Um, and he carves this into his guitar. Yeah. She, well, she carved it into it. She gave him that guitar. Because she broke his guitar when she let all the pigs out. Oh, so yes. she got him a new guitar with that mas- message carved nice. into it. 
he is trying to use the bullfight to impress her because he's convinced that Joaquin, who has now come back and is sort of this big hero of the hour, is going to get her attention. And he ends up making the bullfight very musical, kind of very dance-like. And that side of it, as you said, he, he doesn't seem to be find too difficult to click with yeah well um, that, that she actually that's the side of him that she likes she yeah. she's um riveted when he's uh, doing the musical and the theatrical side of it yeah but when it comes time to stab the bull she's hiding her eyes and absolutely that's... and then he basically says no i can't do this yeah. and everybody else is disgusted as you say and maria is like hmm. wow i like that and Joaquin's Gaston routine, like immediately after this, it, it's um, it would have been so easy to basically make him a complete douchebag who only at the very end shows a little bit of um, Steve. Mm. And <laughs> I think the the key point for Joaquin at this stage, and they do let it show um, in subtle ways but important ways, because, as you say, he is a bit Gaston. All the girls in the village adore him. Mm -hmm. um, And he's this big bandit-killing hero. Mm -hmm. But it's all down to this medal, Mm. this medal of invulnerability. And when push comes to shove, he knows that. Mm. And actually, his point of vulnerability is that somebody will find out. Yeah. And they'll know he's a fake, that he's not really a hero, that it, going out to fight when you know you can't get hurt is not really a manifestation of heroic behaviour and he doesn't deserve all the all the plaudits and um, uh, encouragement that he gets. Hi, Maria. When you were here before... you in the eye You're just like an angel Your skin makes me cry But I'm a creep I'm a weirdo What am I doing A couple of little influences I noticed, like while watching it, you mentioned that uh, uh, video games were quite prevalent. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas, this, this feels like a lot, especially with the, um, the the City of the Dead, which seems like Halloween Town. Although The Nightmare Before Christmas, by comparison, is incredibly shallow with a confusing message. Mm, and dismal as well. I kept thinking that. Everything in this is so colourful. Yeah. And I kept flashing back to Nightmare Before Christmas and thinking, but everything apart from Sally was all in black and grey. Mm. The that before, before Christmas, I I like it, but the uh, the end result appears to be I learned you just stay in your place, don't try to be something you're not, even if it brings you joy, mm. you're probably going to be crap at it and cause absolute chaos, and you ruin it for everyone else who's good at doing that thing. So just stay 
doing the thing that you're you're good at and uh, everything will be better mm. and and if you are depressed stop being depressed I think because <laughs> the... there's probably a goth girl who really really loves you and that's all you need to and then you, know, you can both be depressed to. together because of course that's what it's all about um the uh I think the thing with nightmare before Christmas is at the time it was pushing back against the very kiddie saccharine tone the holly jolly of, side of, yeah, of christmas films um, of christmas movies and which is why they released it just after halloween <laughs> nonsensical and and at the time it was great but since then i think it's been outstripped in terms of animation and oh story. god yes even just by the people who made it themselves the mm. um like like everything like i have done is is technically better than uh Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, James and the Giant Peach is technically better than mm. Nightmare Before Christmas. But, but also, it's got a better message. That's that's right. That is again the natural the, order. Of the things. progress that of moving is what's forwards. Supposed to happen rather than you worshiping your grandfathers and hating your grandsons. Precisely, you make things that are bigger and better and progress forward. Because otherwise, what's the point? If you if you were just gonna make replica spectrums mm. for the rest of your life why would you be in computing if you're not interested in advancing the uh, the field um little big planet as well there is a whole series of levels in little big planet based on the uh, day of the dead and that it has this beautiful bright colorful see i loved little big planet aesthetically speaking the game was insanely gorgeous just in terms of like the first levels were also like elizabethan clothes in the garden it was like such a wonderful combination of elements and um the there was like sort of a disco funk type level but it wasn't a disco gag it was all just sort of that that kind of funky feel Uh, and there was a whole day of the dead type thing and there was the the african uh, savannah type stuff that was going on just the, the thing that drove me insane and was never fixed in that first game and meant that i could just never play it was you know, oh, you've got when you hit a restart point within the level, you've got four lives, and if you fall down a pit four times, you've got to do the whole level again. Sorry, and it's like, well, if I'm playing with someone else who dies repeatedly, we're screwed. Mm, so yeah. all you're doing there is build fostering resentment between humans. Well I done. I could never get my head round why that game was so aesthetically geared towards children, yeah. yet so mechanically hard. Well, the the jump mechanics didn't have that Mario um, Mario reliability no. to them. They were ridiculously imprecise. Every time I landed on anything, I'd skid off the end. We're off the point a little bit. Um, yes, carry on. The, as well as um, being obviously inspired by uh, several previous likers, um, if you guys have seen the trailer for a upcoming Pixar movie called Coco, that looks alarmingly similar aesthetically to this. But again, that's okay. It's it's fine for something as exotic and singular as this to be um, reconveyed by different people. I, I put a little more stock in Pixar than they just went, yeah, that looks like a good idea, let's just do that and just rehash that thing. It's uh, They always tend to have a really solid message at the core and beautiful films to watch and uh, inspirational stories. So, uh, you know, we need more of these, less apathetic stories. Mm. So um, if this inspired that, then fantastic. Mm. I would hope that to at least some extent they have done what Gutierrez did and and got people on board who grew up in Mexico and, Mm. and are immersed in that culture in their life. 
so that they what they create is coming from a place of heartfelt recognition. Gutierrez declined to send his uh, entire staff to uh, Mexico to to learn about the culture, um, figuring that they would just be sent to tourist trap type places and it would end up feeling quite generic and like you know cultural appropriation effectively mm. so he to keep it directly from the heart and 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 from a place of authenticity although this was kind of a gamble he basically said if you have questions i will tell you everything that i possibly can mm. and it, I think that paid off because it feels very personal as a story. Yeah. Or any other number mm. of the Mexican crew or um, uh, animators yeah. and designers that were on board as well. And th- the only reason that would not work is if a person assumed they knew everything that ne- there was needed to be known about something, especially if they were not, in fact, from that uh, culture or if they were from a very specific... Like, if they were a rich kid from the culture talking about the life of the poor... That doesn't work either, necessarily. But in in this case, he was exactly on the ball. Um, Another thing that he really wanted to um, adhere to was he loves art books. Uh, He loves animation, um, clearly, passionately. It was just listening to the uh, the enthusiasm in his voice. And he, you know, is a collector of big hardbound art books of the making of the film. But he was always annoyed that... You look at the the previous sketch stuff. Oh, the previous, the the uh, prototype sketch. What's the word? The um, preliminary sketches. preliminary sketches. The just the early stage sketches, and then the sort of developments, and then turning it into something. When they hit the beautiful stage, and they look absolutely magnificent, and then you look at the final film, and you're like, why isn't that like that? His remit was, we've got to get our art books looking like our film, or more specifically our film, looking exactly like our art books when we get to that stage of making them look vibrant and beautiful and and, um, uh, soaring and transportive. And it should not have to stop on the page. Mm. Well, part of how they achieved that, um, one of the animators was talking about the fact that when you design a character on paper initially, you're designing it to look incredible. Yeah. But once you start to animate it, you've then got to think about how it moves. So it's not just it has to look awesome standing still. The joints have to make sense. And because they were working with such a stylized set of images, this blocky wooden puppet um, function, they had to think about that when they were doing the actual design stage. Mm. Will this person be able to raise their hands above their head? Will they be able to turn and look at somebody or pull a particular face without it suddenly looking not real anymore? And look out when you watch it. If We're coming to a a spoiler section, basically. We're going to have to like uh, turn a corner at this stage and say, look, if you haven't seen it yet, pause, go watch, and then come back. Uh, but when you're watching, look out for the amount of skulls and hearts everywhere, with the skulls obviously indicating the land of the dead and the hearts the land of the living, and how often they are intertwined mm-hmm. um, and, and on screen at the same time. Uh, the level of detail, and just look, look, keep your eyes on the background, watch it twice at least, like maybe watch it once, listen to us, then go back and watch it again. The... Um, the music as well, like you know, we've barely even mentioned that, but it's it threaded throughout there. Are these wonderful little um, 
uh, musical moments to the point where on the Blu-ray you can actually you know isolate the individual musical moments themselves, just you know, so kids can. I love that song. I want to see that bit right there, um, which saves you having to grapple with YouTube, who would keep tossing the songs off and going, no, nope, they're blocked in your country. It's an eclectic collection of uh, various songs and styles from the West and uh, also from Mexico. So you've got this remix culture feel to it. Oh, I will say one other thing before the spoiler section. There is a music video on the Blu-ray which uh, features uh, the two people in the costumes of the gods with their sort of makeup tapping on the shoulder a man and a woman who are about to start singing, um, obviously the recording artists, and then, you know, passing away into these doors in the background. And then after they're about halfway through the song, the man and the woman get up and they're suddenly wearing the Day of the Dead um, uh, face paint as well. And they tap on the shoulder a pair of kids who continue the song and they pass into the back doors and go into the land of the dead. It's a beautiful, subtle passing it on, keeping it going. Just the idea that they're happy to be departing because other people have got it. You know, they've, they've, they've got the song and it will continue playing. And the song carries on, the rest of it is in the uh, Land of the Dead. And Gutierrez made the point that the tales of the gods are tales of just parents and their children. The stories of basically the legacy passed on through families and generations and friendships and just really emphasizing the natural quality of death in society as it should be. And it's... Have you... (laughs) If you go to, I mean, I always keep bringing these up and using them as my whipping boy. The kind of um, rare entertainment, because it's 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 a rare and uh, irresponsible philosophy to peddle, but something like Twilight, where uh, Bella is terrified of growing old and dying naturally, and the conclusion is she gets to not have to grow old and die naturally. She gets to be beautiful and super powerful to the end of her, well, to the end of time with this immortal, beautiful, super powerful boyfriend. That is a genuinely terrible message to be giving our teenage girls. Mm. That's a fucking terrible message. One of the biggest... It's the opposite of Harry Potter, where Harry embraces that just death is a natural part of life. Mm. One of the biggest clashes between... Uh, pagan and pre-Christian religions and uh, patriarchal, specifically Abrahamic religions that I find difficult to reconcile because there's there is a lot in particularly in Christianity, which is ultimately the the, the monotheistic faith that I know the most about. Um, there is a lot of value in that faith and the various denominations thereof. But the clash between the idea that life leads to death, leads to life, leads to death, and it is an endless cycle, and that is natural, and that is how it should be, compared to death is a point that you should fear because you will be judged, and if you haven't led a good enough life, you're going to go to a bad place, and um, or peddling the idea that after you die, you will be rewarded for all of the martyrdom that you had in life, and all of the shit that you put up with and let other people get away with. Um, after you die, everything's going to be wonderful. Oh, but you can't kill yourself. Oh, no, 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 because then everybody would do it, because if you have, you know... But anyway, that's getting beside the point but the the embracing in this of the idea that that a death goddess 
is loving and kindly and takes people away when it is their time to be taken away, whether that be because they're old or because they've had an accident or because they were ill. You know, there are numerous people that uh, that um, you meet in this story and it's it's not all just a, they had a, a long and happy life and then died on the, their own bed surrounded by their family. There's people there who were killed in accidents and um, for, for various reasons. But they're all in the same place and they're all as happy. It's not, there's nothing taking away from that. But just this idea that, that this cycle is right and people accepting that. It's pertinent that one of Manolo's ancestors was a conquistador because that sets a time limit on the idea that the Catholic religion was brought to Mexico by the Spanish conquerors who came to South America. Prior to that, they were not Catholic and so they basically kind of fused these two religions into what they they currently now have where they've uh, in in the case of um, book of life taken beautiful aspects from both the old and new religions and combined them into the celebration of life and death but um very specifically with manolo not wanting to continue bullfighting that is very much part of the span like old spanish culture that was brought across and then put in Mexico. And it's something that is in this film now being revised. And it's so subtle the fact that the guy's a conquistador, but it's that that's just what I inferred. Mm. But that one part of the beauty of that for me is that it, it underlines this idea that you can be inspired by tradition. You can find things to love about tradition. That doesn't mean Mm. you have to follow every guideline of it blindly. It certainly doesn't mean that you have to ignore what you really want in life simply because somebody older than you says, well, it's always been done this way, so that's Mm. what you're going to do. So we'll uh, call spoiler now and uh, play some music uh, because afterwards we have to talk about the land of the dead and everything that happens in Acts what the second half of the film basically and uh, from this point onwards we won't have to explain it and what happens we'll just discuss the finale with full disclosure important philosophical points yeah Corpse Bride feel to this as well. But again, when you get to the end of this 
and uh, you, you look at the actual philosophy they're getting across in this and the, 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 the powerful link. It's kind of like they've taken the kernel of the idea in Corpse Bride and run with it and really elaborated on that. Well, one of the things that the Corpse Bride sells as an idea is that death shouldn't happen. The, the number of people in it. Not, not, sorry, I'm getting that arse about face. It's not the point of the movie, but what a lot of people feel in the first two thirds is that death shouldn't happen. And they're all terrified of change. They all want things to carry on the way they always have done. And, and they're going out of their way. Every last exactly. little thing, every single tiny microscopic little thing must go according to plan. But that they're all pulling strings to try and get everything to to carry on in the same vein as they always have done, and that's something that seems to me to be quite a core part of of grief and dealing with death from a position of it being incredibly traumatic and and not processing it properly. Because if something, if if you are uncertain of your own ability to deal with the change that inevitably comes from somebody dying then you're going to do your best to keep that all at arm's length and not allow any of it to encroach and that's going to stop you from processing that properly because if things are changing they're changing there's not a lot you can do to put the brakes on it one thing i didn't mention during the non-spoiler section uh, was the amount of poop gags shoveled in all at the beginning i might add that basically say animal poop gags and I'm going to go I probably need to miss that film but I didn't want to dissuade people from seeing this but yeah there's a bit where a goat poops and then immediately after some kids selling churros and a bird shits on them and it's like I haven't even finished grimacing from the last one you're going to do two in a row and then later on a pig pisses on him and I'm like oh, yep okay cool that's fine I just there's there's it's a kind of a trailer moment now when um, those trolls in Trolls were pooping cupcakes and then like a cloud wet himself. And I'm just, I find that kind of gag exhausting. I don't know, like, it just, it drains the energy out of a scene for me. It's easy humour, especially if you're writing for children. Oh my God, is it easy? So if that's It's, it's humour to elicit you... one specific laugh. <laughs> I'm not a witch, but you know. No. But, if, but if that's what if that's what the writers are leading with, mm. then you're kind of sitting there thinking, from a sunk costs perspective. Yeah. Do I really want to put more time into this if this is the level of humour they're aiming for? Yeah. Once you got the kids in the cinema, you don't really need to keep them focused with the poop yeah. gags. Poop gags in the trailers, but don't put it in the actual film. Yeah. Maybe. Like when the kids are going, are you sure there was a poop gag coming here? Or like just put one poop gag in. But, but, but three? This is, I actually think it's handled quite well here, and two of those actually did make me laugh. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Bird poo on the churros. I, I did think that was quite. Oh, wonderful. for goodness! It's, no, 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 no! It's not the. Poo, it's just. It's the speed with which he responds to it. Frosted churros. Yeah. I mean, it's hideous, but and for some reason, the pig peeing on his foot. Oh, pig like piss it. makes you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what can I say? There are days when I have quite a low. Keep an eye out for them, folks, because my theory is now that because Disco has passed out of all memory, Mm. um, that animal poop gags gags are the new new Disco disco gag. (laughs) I mean, animal poop gags have been around since a a long, long time ago, but, you know, Disney didn't really feel the need to do poop gags that much. 
Not, I mean, we could definitely mention a few, but like they didn't tend to do it much. I'm pretty sure that somewhere there is a cave painting of a herd of reindeer and a little hastily scribbled charcoal pile of droppings behind yeah. one of and them. And a stick figure going, ah, <laughs> having fallen on it. Oh, the animal pooped on let, me. Let me do some little wavy stink lines. He got the so poop on his head. <laughs> so that generations to come, in thousands and thousands of years, people will know that this poop smelled. Would you like to come to a party? Um, yeah, but like, like, like the, the Manic Kids animation at the beginning is a framing device. It's used to lure in children. Wow, that sounded weird. <laughs> <laughs> hey, children, come through this secret door and look at all this candy skull I have. I don't know. But it, it seems like that would work brilliantly if it was Netflix, like to try and get the kids watching in the first place. With Netflix, you've got like more than any other more than any other situation, you've got, I'm bored of this, I'll switch over to a thing. Like, um, maybe TV, I don't know, it's been a while since I, I watched TV, but on Netflix, like, you've got 700 different kids' films or TV shows they could be watching instead, so they'd be like, ah, there's not enough poop gags in this, so they switch over to something else. Right. I might have imagined this, or it might have been in some kind of weird Black Mirror episode, but when they were working on advanced functions for the Kinect... Was poop one does of it do, No, no, no. <laughs> does oh, it God. remember when you're no, pooping? No, that would be hideous. Does it do a thing where it can read your eyeline? So if you look away from the TV enough, it asks you if you're bored with what you're watching and do you want to watch something else? No, you imagine that. I imagine that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I completely made that up. You're not liking this then? Just imagine your Kinect talking with Kevin Spacey's voice at you. You're not liking this? Me either. You want me to switch it over to something else? We could be watching Stranger Things again right now. Yeah, okay. Helpful. Right. The Bridge of Candles section in the uh, film where Maria um, goes along um, to where Manolo has waited for her with a big question uh, was actually the thing that happened with Jorge Gutierrez and his wife. Uh, that was um, something he did, which is a really lovely um, like little personal touch to add there. Uh, and the rain that happens after she's bitten by the snake and then starts affecting them. That's the first time it's actually rained in the film and it really suddenly, like you're, like there's wet wood and it's dripping down their, their, their wooden bodies and suddenly they're reactive. And that's, that's striking, striking use of uh, an animated uh, element. And it changes the tone of the film because suddenly it crosses into a, oh, you didn't think we were going to do that, but we totally did. But the actual the, the the land of the dead is is sumptuous to look at and uh, uh, comforting to watch. I, I commented that you know queuing up to watch a uh, a parade again would be my idea of hell, not heaven. Like I, I would not want to queue because um, I like every time we walk down the street, like when there's like a a cycling race or something, or something's going through town, they they put up a bunch of barriers and you can't get down to the town centre and you just want to go and get a thing and like everyone's in your way. That drives me bug shit nuts. It's like, yeah, fantastic cycling. Cycling's really good. Can I just get to the other side of the street, please? You know, I hate that. Yeah. I really like the method by which they get them into the land of the dead um, because basically after... Manolo asks Maria if she'll marry him. Hmm. Um, Zibalba plants a snake 
and I don't know whether his intention is for what happens to happen exactly the way it does, but it certainly works out quite well for him. Mm. Um, the snake basically uh, does Maria get in between them? Is it accidental or is she trying to? I always anticip- uh, interpreted that as that the snake very deliberately goes after her, okay. so that um, Zabalba could get the. Yes, I would like to be dead to join her right, gotcha. from Manolo. But the, the frame of that, that she is bitten by a snake in this, their happiest moment, or mm. what is about to be their happiest moment, is um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. Uh, except that in that story, obviously she really is dead and gets taken down into um, Hades. Hades and Orpheus goes after her mm. with his... Liar. Liar. And... Manolo, when he believes that Maria is dead, in actual fact, she's just unconscious. But they know, they've seen it now. Oh, yeah, of course they have. His choice springs from his main character trait, which is his, his compassion. Yeah. Which means that his response to thinking that she is dead is one of sadness rather than one of anger, which is what Joaquin responds with. Yeah. And Joaquin... Is I mean, he doesn't lash out at Manolo, but he basically turns around and says, this is your fault. Well, he looks for someone to blame for this yeah, one. Why didn't exactly. you protect her? Because he's angry. Yeah. And that kind of illustrates why Manolo is the one to fix this, not Joaquin. He, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't have the skills. But he does have a very specific duty, which is to defend the town. So when that happens, uh, and he... It's lovely the way that uh, that actually ends up with uh, the, the, the final sequence... Um, again, you folks have all seen it, so uh, that he gives up that part of him that he's been basically training for his entire life. You know, I'm going to be the big hero here, and he gives that to Manolo out of respect. Mm, yeah, well, he, he, his arc begins halfway through this story, really. Mm. Joaquin's uh, character progress starts when Maria agrees to marry him. Yeah. Because at this point, he realises... Because he, he asked her to marry him before, and then I think the, the implication is that he will leave the town if she doesn't marry him. Mm-hmm. And so, because the people think they need him to protect them, they uh, Maria's father begs her to agree to marry him. And because she cares about the town, she and will. And she says she will... Relatively exactly, one-way to love. protect the town. And even um, that, I don't think Joaquin truly loves her because he doesn't really know her or value no, her against it, himself. It seems to be more, you know, she's the most beautiful girl in town. That makes her the best. And, and don't, don't I, I deserve, deserve the best? best? Like I said, he's Gaston if Gaston wasn't a total ass. Um, but he, when he kind of twigs that she doesn't love him but will marry him out of a sense of duty, mm-hmm. he doesn't really want that. He actually tries to back away from that. Yeah. Um, but her father interrupts and basically steps in and arranges the whole thing. Um and then later on, when you actually get to the scene where they're about to be married, he freaks out again because he hasn't got his medal with him and he's vulnerable for the first time. Yeah. And he realises that and that's not he's not ready for this. And so he runs out. I love the fact that uh, when he, he loses his eye, which is... Uh 
pretty grisly the actual the implications of that that because he wasn't uh, invincible this one time he's been horribly maimed in a way that would uh, would you know ruin the lives of some people who would consider themselves to be ruined under those circumstances he sees it almost as a badge of honor Mm. and that uh, he says he's never seen clearer in his life that's that's a touching moment of his character coming through of um, humility and uh, selflessness. Mm. It also mimics um, Manolo's ancestor, the one who is missing an eye and has Mm. a sword for a leg. Yeah, that conquistador who's voiced by... um, And he he basically says people with two eyes and two legs are wimps. (laughs) (laughs) Placido Domingo, he's the one who's the uh, the opera singer in Mm. the actual film. But yeah, I mean, uh, Channing Tatum does again a fantastic job. I've always liked Channing Tatum, um, and uh, he does a, a fantastic job as uh, making this guy like beyond the standard stereotype douchebag. But at the same time, he's believably odious at the beginning. Like, he's not hateable, but you're like, oh, this guy. Mm. It's a nice little development of the trope. But it's, I, I think part of that, and this is, again, this is another reason why I, I, this is a dynamic that I really like, when you have two male characters, and this is kind of building on um, something Dan Floyd said a long time ago, and which we've brought up repeatedly, the idea that female characters are interesting to the degree to which they reject the, or embrace, um, or embrace the role that society forces on them. Mm. Um, I would expand that to male characters as well. Yeah. And I've said that before. But when you have a, a dynamic where you've got uh, two male characters, one of whom knows they don't fit in the slot that everybody's trying to shoehorn them into and is doesn't find it easy to fight against that, but does. Because basically it's harder to not be yourself and more tiring to not be yourself than it is to be yourself, Mm. ultimately. But when there is also a character in the story who hasn't figured that out yet and buys into the template that people lay down for them and apparently gets rewarded for that to a degree but then has to have a much more painful revelation further on in the story that actually what they've gone after their whole life is not them at all. And that's actually a character that I, a character type that I'm starting to have much more sympathy for than I, I would have done previously. Mm. Um, and the, the fact that sooner or later they are going to have to deal with the fact that they, they haven't been able to be them for most of their life. And like I said, it, it's, it hurts to suddenly have to turn that around. Um, and that can be even more interesting than somebody who's known all along they don't fit with society and, and has accepted that early. And the uh, moment when uh, Manolo has to take down a thousand bulls and they all turn into this mega bull and he he sings the apology song, there's a, a decision he has to make between the wrathful sword and the kind guitar. Kubo took that same road mm. one year later in, yeah. in 2015. Now, obviously, Kubo was in production for many years, but it's delightful to see that they have the same core uh, heart of um, that just continuing the cycle of 
destroying your enemies doesn't allow anything to grow. Mm, yeah. The idea that he compassion is his character trait and when push comes to shove he sticks with that. Yeah. Your royal blood was never meant to decorate this sand You've suffered great injustice, so have thousands before you I offer an apology and one long overdue I am sorry, Toro, I am sorry Hear my song and know I sing the truth Although we were bred to fight I reach for kindness in your heart tonight And if you can forgive And if you can forgive Love can truly live And if you can forgive And if you can forgive Love can truly But I'll use my final breath To tell you that I'm sorry Let us end this dance of death To centuries of agony That to your heart we send Here and now with my amends The senseless killing ends I am sorry Toro, I am sorry Hear my song And know I sing the truth Although we were bred to fight I reach for kindness in your heart tonight And if you can forgive And if you can forgive Love can truly I love the fact as well that, and th this happens a little bit earlier on, when he first starts meeting his ancestors in the land of the dead, finding out, and this is this is what I referred to earlier on when I said about he finds something out that he couldn't have done without them being there because they yeah. don't talk about it in the land of the living. The fact that so many of his ancestors didn't want to be bullfighters either. Yeah. You know, the conquistador wanted to be an opera singer. Yeah. There's there's one guy who wanted to be a clown. Was that um, Danny Trejo? I think it might have been. He's the one who beat that guy up with a moustache. Yeah. But but there's several of them that bullfighting was not really their true thing, but they stuck with it. They because went they with it. To, and that meant... Exactly. And therefore, they perpetuated that cycle of having to be something that you're not. Yeah. 
Um, and that, you mentioned the whole like sticking on the, the, the path that they began. Um, Maria was smart and brave and uh, compassionate and wanted to help people, and she ends that way as well. Manolo is compassionate and tries to prevent violence wherever he can. And, and be himself. And be himself. And that's obviously the, his biggest fear was being himself. That was a little bit wishy-washy the way that was put yeah, across. Yeah, I, I really liked the idea that the thing he feared most was the weight of expectation of, of his ancestors, yeah. which manifested in the form of all of these bulls. Yeah. So being himself and being the himself that everybody else had laid upon him are two different things. Mm. But um, I got what they meant in, in, in the end in a strangled way. But um, Joaquim, being a hero, he was able to do that at the end. But it wasn't about him. He was able to give that chance to Manolo, and he still got to be the hero. But there is a different route of doing something very good for people without being expecting to be praised for it mm. and that is a refinement of the uh you know very simple i'm the hero so praise me that he'd been taught his entire life absolutely he he is kicked away from the final fight by manolo yeah so he doesn't get to be the hero that he was psyching himself up to be but he'd already done it by sacrificing his invulnerability that yeah. was the heroic act for him it's not the fight it's the giving up the the protection, giving up that uh, that security of, and again, because that that invulnerability was something that he always had in the back of his mind. This is fake. It's not me. It's not a skill that I I possess. It's just because of this medal. Um, so ultimately, what he gave up there, although it was it was obviously his invulnerability, he's also giving up the idea that he has to be this fake hero. Yeah. And the way it's resolved at the end, the the, the bandits um, side of things, uh, probably one of the weaker aspects of the the film. If you like, they're, they're not really developed that much. They're just hostility, mm. and um, they're just you know people for the for these guys to take down, and um, uh, you know with the help of the dead, uh, it felt like uh, some slight tweaking could make them uh, a, a example of European oppression which Mexico then fights back towards but they kind of made them of no particular just just a general threat mm. if that makes sense there, there is an illusion at the beginning um, when Maria's father is trying to G up the the guards and the soldiers to be I think the way he puts it is that they they have to be rebels they have mm. to, to fight the rebellion and then the moment Maria exhibits any kind of rebellious behavior <laughs> he tries to stamp it out <laughs> which I thought was a really nice little juxtaposition yeah. um, but that is is pretty much the the main political. Mm element that comes into it but it's fine because the, the point is that the, the the standing up to that threat is the the important thing and i i love seeing small towns galvanized by uh, a small band of heroes so, so like the, i automatically wanted to start watching three amigos after this mm. um oh you know bugs life take your pick uh, galaxy quest all the same film but you yeah, know it's, it's never quite managed to get through the seven samurai though have we uh, we'll, we'll go back at some point mm. it's, yeah Best action film ever made, according to BFI. Mm, thank God they've remade it so many times, otherwise we wouldn't know the story. Best action film ever remade. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the the, uh, the harmony is re-restored, because obviously the, the balance of the uh, land of the dead and the land of the forgotten was imbalanced by the uh, the bet, 
and uh, it is rebalanced by their actions at the end. If you listen to the commentary, we had not noticed this. Uh, I don't know if it was in the commentary or the... Uh, it was one of the extras, actually. Uh, they point out that La, La Muerta has a blue tinge to her eyes. Uh, it's her eyeshadow. Her eyeshadow, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Um, and Which means she only have, has eyes for Sebulva. Uh, who himself has little red skulls as his pupils, the red being her dress. So it's got that kind of yin-yang thing, uh, you know, all all set up. And they are ultimately um, companions uh, in a a kind of a more benevolent Oberon and Titania thing going on there, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Definitely. With Ice Cube playing Puck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I suppose, to a point. He's kind of the the neutral balance point in the middle, I suppose. Mother Pucker. He did did make (laughs) me think a little bit of, um, of the fates. Yeah, because I mean, they, they, he has candles instead of threads, but ultimately he's got mm. a candle for every human soul, and when the candles go out, that means that they've yeah. been forgotten. But yeah, that did make me think of the whole Greek thread snipping mm. thing. Also, noticed that Mary Beth at the beginning, the uh, one of the disguises for La Muerta, uh, played by Christina Applegate. Uh, she has blue eyes and red hair, which is an incredible genetic rarity. So that was them kind of tipping their hand and saying, okay, this is an unusual thing. Look out for someone else with blue eyes. Although, interestingly, the the old man who's uh, running the museum, I immediately thought, well, that's Ron Perlman. So I tied those two characters together straight away. Santa Muerta, Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerta, a Spanish for Our Lady of the Holy Death, is a female deity or folk saint, depending on school of thought, in Mexican folk religion, particularly folk Catholicism, venerated primarily in Mexico and the southwestern United States. A personification of death, she is associated with healing, protection, and safe delivery to the afterlife by her devotees. Despite condemnation by the Catholic Church, her cult has become prominent in the 2000s and 2010s as a continuation of the Aztec God of death, that's Nahual for Lady of the Dead. Since the this is all from uh, Wikipedia, but it, it plays into how La Muerta is being currently portrayed culturally. Since the pre Columbian era, Mexico culture has maintained a certain reverence towards death, which can be seen in the widespread commemoration of the Day of the Dead. Elements of that celebration include the use of skeletons to remind people of their mortality. The worship of Santa Muerte is condemned by the Catholic Church in Mexico as invalid, but is firmly entrenched among an increasing percentage of Mexican culture. Santa Muerte generally appears as a skeletal female figure clad in a long robe and holding one or more objects, usually a scythe and a globe. Her robe can be of any color as more specific images of the figure vary wildly from devotee to devotee, and according to the rite being performed or the petition being made. Hmm. As the worship of Santa Muerta was clandestine until the 20th century, most prayers and other rites have been traditionally performed privately at home. Since the beginning of the 21st century, worship has uh, become more public, especially in Mexico City, after Enrique Romero initiated her famous Mexico City Shrine in 2001. The number of believers in Santa Muerta has grown over the past 10 to 20 years to an estimated 10 to 20 million followers in Mexico, the United States, and parts of Central America. Santa Muerta has a similar male counterparts in America, such as the skeletal folk saints San Lamuerta or of Paraguay and Rey Pascual of Guatemala. Now, this all plays into a news... Like, if you look for uh, Santa Muerte on, on YouTube, we found a news item all about 
This terrifying new Mexican death cult. A patron saint of death? You may not have heard of her, but recently Santa Muerte began making international headlines amid reports of ritual human sacrifice just south of the U.S. border in Mexico. And as 8 News investigative reporter A.J. Legault uncovers, the worship of death is being practiced right here in the metro area. This skeletal maiden with the empty eyes is a saint for sinners. It's very scary. I don't like to deal with none of that. Um, to me, it's kind of like worshiping Satan. She goes by several names. I call her the Grim Reapress. Officially, she's Santa Muerte, Saint Death. She's also known as the Bony Lady, and her popularity is exploding. She has millions of followers, devotees, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. And many of those devotees are among the most violent criminals in the world. She is the premier narco saint. Dr. Andrew Chestnut is a religious studies professor at VCU. He literally wrote the book on Santa Muerte devoted to death. A lot of cartel members in Mexico uh, count among the ranks of her devotees. Santa Morte is nothing new to those who battle drug lords and traffickers. Throughout uh, a number of years, uh, most DEA field divisions have at one time or another been involved with the Santa Muerte, the statutes and, and the rituals uh, that relate to that. If you are a cartel member, you can ask her that that load of methamphetamines being shipped to DC, Atlanta, or here close to home in Richmond make safe passage. So how prevalent is the devotion to death right here in Richmond? We found candles that can be burned in worship to the death saint in Latino markets all across the metro area. And store owners tell us these things are big sellers. How popular are the Santa Muerte uh, candles and the dolls? Well, they're really popular. We sell them a lot. Like in a week, I will set up like about 30, 40 candles. The candles are often used to set up shrines. That's the sound of a man being tortured. It was at this point that I turned off in disgust. That is a genuinely cardboard tube focus on a much larger issue. Stoking the flames of racial prejudice between Americans and Mexicans between new religions and old. That this is the only information source for a hell of a lot of people sickens me. Are the Mexicans coming for your children with their knives? It's the most disgusting, alarmist, racist, reductive dismissal and condemnation of something that clearly has quite a lot of cultural influence and heritage dating a long way back that has positive as well as negative influence. Clearly and manifestly, this is not just one thing. It's also worth noting that Diego Luna got the role because he sang uh, I Love You Too Much in his uh, audition tapes. And um, just hearing that made Gutierrez and his wife start to tear up. And they were like, right, we got our guy straight away. 
possibly would have tweaked if I'd had the choice. Mm. I like the balance of, of the three of them. And although it ends with Maria and Manolo marrying and um, Joaquin being very happy for them both. He gets dogpiled by a bunch of groupies. He does, which is nice for him. Um, but if, if that was the way it was going to play out, I think for me I would have liked it to be made a little bit clearer earlier in the film that... Uh, Maria was only really interested in him as a friend um, or by the end of it that she decided that actually she didn't have to marry anybody hmm. uh, for me it seemed clear that um, she really liked Manolo from the get go and he was always going to marry him mm-hmm. but she would have because it was her duty married Joaquin to save the village and not been too you know, unbearably sad about it, not wasted away in her grief, you know, because she had to be strong for everybody else. She's a very strong, independent, smart, confident woman. Mm. If she had, you know, finished at the end and gone, no, I don't even need a man, it would almost have been... A little bit. ...overplaying the hand and going, Mm. yes, I've got six aces. You might be... (laughs) You might be right there. Seven aces. (laughs) No, you're right. I don't think she's the kind of person to let... um, 
a husband prevent her from mm. doing all the things that she wanted to do. Also, this was clearly created by a husband and wife team who really wanted to sort mm. of like get that that, that male female harmony uh, put across, which obviously doesn't necessarily work for absolutely everyone. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, the important thing is not specifically that they were male and female, but that they were friends who genuinely loved one another. Yeah, it's it's the idea of balance again. And that I have to admit, it did kind of make me think, does that mean Gutierrez is Zabalba and is... Kind of. Mischievous and... A <laughs> um, Messes things up. But, uh, but I, I love the fact that they, you know, they reveal themselves at the end and um, th- that it... The implication is that this is just something that keeps going and going. And the, the the last words of, you know, make your own story. These are the words I live by. The idea of being, uh, you know, another link in the creative chain. That you are inspired by the storytellers before you. And you want to inspire the storytellers of tomorrow. There is nothing more natural and wonderful than that to me. And that human culture is given its lifeblood by its stories. I asked Lyra afterwards um, what would be in the book of Lyra when it was finished. And she said, I don't know. I'm still writing my own story. (laughs) I'm going to play you another little snippet of Tiger's Eye, which this sentiment made me think of. Before that time, I am two years old. My grandmother is telling me stories. I cannot recall her face. But those hands of hers have never left my memory. Brown and delicate, with crinkled skin covering all bones. She tells me her great-grand-ancestors were Aztec, which connects me with that long-ago time and those ancient people. That means her stories are my stories too. My favourites are the frightening ones. The story of the Nahual in particular has been mesmerized. This is a brujo, a warlock, who is no longer satisfied with simply being a man. He speaks with the coyote, the dog, the wolf or the jaguar, until he understands them better than any other. Then, with their animal spirits and animal fur and animal teeth planted in his mind, he sheds his skin, changing his shape and becomes one with them. Roaming the land, free of his former prison, he is able to satisfy his darkest desires, devouring livestock, taking women, men, and children. My grandmother's hands grip mine lightly. She swears that in her younger days, she saw one such being. What was most frightening was that she witnessed him assuming the form of a man again. In her words, the last thing to change were his eyes. And thinking back, she could not be certain they changed at all. What did you do, Abuelita? I asked. I hid until he found me, and then ran until he could not catch me. Had I been older, I would not have believed her. I would also have scoffed inside, but hidden it to save hurting her feelings. I was born in 1871, the last year in which adults believe that there are no monsters, no real ones. Now I know for certain that there are, but my grandmother is far behind me. Nor one day passes when I do not miss those warm, 
papery hands. Abuelita in that story was uh, based on my grandmother Lillian, who really did have those hands and really did tell me stories, which stuck with me. And the book is dedicated to her. Um, I knew she was nearing the end as I was writing that, and she died before I could complete it. But I would like to think that a part of her has been kept alive in the book, in the work, in a celebration of her as a person. She's only a small part of it, but she informs heavily on Miguel's character and, and how he behaves and how he sees the world. Apparently there is a sequel planned which will focus on Joaquim and his father. So we can see that guy mm. developed further. Nice. Okay, that's cool. I would definitely like to see these guys do more. Um, not sure I'd be able to sit through every episode of El Tigre, but uh, I'd have a go. It's a clearly a deeply personal, um, joyous tale. You know, it made $99 million out of a $50 million budget. That's better than any Leica managed in the past. To that end, they succeeded as much as they probably could have, really. You know, on a, on a, a relatively unknown uh, animation studio with a relatively limited budget and a relatively quirky concept. And a difficult push-pull between this will annoy your parents, but at the same time it will enchant your kids. You know, you don't have that Disney badge to say, or indeed Pixar badge to say, come on in, parents, you know we've got you covered. You know? Mm. But I'd like that to be a name that uh, these guys make for themselves. Uh, Real FX Creative Studios, that is. And major thanks and hearts and skulls going out to our $15 special sponsors this month. So that's Abel Savard, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Timothy Green, David Garcia, Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. We would journey to the land of the remembered to bring you back. You'd never need to go to the land of the forgotten because we shall remember you. And that's Book of Life, a film we will be recommending in the future. And we are glad that we could bring it to you. Thank you very much, Abel Savard, for commissioning this one. Next week, we have The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's right, Sean Connery's last cinematically released film, The Victorian Avengers. And actually, if you look at the story, it's really oddly spookily similar in some ways. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen coming next week. And after that, folks, you might want to jump on Netflix and watch a little show called Bojack Horseman because we have got a pair of episodes covering season one and then seasons two and three. It is heavy going, but after you've gotten through a couple of episodes, that the really dry sense of humor and this meme-tastic level of like recurring gags, arrested development levels of continuity and callbacks. Hello, other grown-up. Oh, cheer up, dummy. Your book is a huge success. Everybody loves you. You just won a Golden Globe. If you can't be happy tonight, maybe you'll never be happy again. I'm sorry, is that supposed to be encouraging? Because it's super bleak. Vincent Adultman, how are things at the old 9 to 5? Good. 
I went to the stock market today. I did a business. I keep telling him he works too hard. Come on, Vincent. Let's get away from the rat race. Take a cruise someplace wet and Latin. I mean, can you imagine this body in a swimsuit? I literally cannot. Bojack is kind of, because it's Will Arnett voicing the horse, it's kind of an adults-only Lego Batman. Lonely Will Arnett trying to take stock of his life. And he's a horse. Mm. So, yeah. It's a packed month, folks. And uh, we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out. Out. I will stay by you Even when we fall I will be the rock that holds you up And lifts you high so you stand tall